Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that though the world has forsaken you for, for so many centuries and forsaken your word in these last days, even among those in the faith, Father, we, we recognize many have walked away from the truth, the absolute inerrant truth of your word. But we are thankful, Father, that men like Tommy Ice and others who came after him, the elders, the volunteers and participants in this church for many years have stood against that that trend and have maintained a committed desire to study and learn your word. Father, I ask that you would not let us forget what a special blessing that is in this day to be part of a church that concerns itself with the things that you have written. And at the same time, Father, I pray that while we study to know and understand that it would not be merely a pursuit of knowledge. I do pray, Father, that you would always convict and remind us as well that what you have delivered once and for all to the saints is by design intended to spur us to greater works that glorify your name among the nations. Help us to see those opportunities and to take advantage of what we've been taught to put it to good work. And whatever way you may uh, cause us to to work, whatever opportunities you may place before us, give us courage, Father, to accept and embrace those opportunities and to be good witnesses. So today, Father, in your study of Genesis and of the flood in chapter 7, give us a right knowledge so that we may have a right behavior. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I love teaching God's Word as a rule from the pulpit because you can never really go wrong. For the most part, it doesn't matter how well you do it. Presumably, you do it with your best intent. People get the message. But the key is that by the delivery of God's Word, I have put fuel into the engine that is the Holy Spirit in each of us. And the Holy Spirit will take what we find in God's Word and put it to work in our hearts in a way that I couldn't even try to do if I wanted to. So the beauty of my role is I just have to deliver and let God do the hard work with His Word. And He promises that He will do so. Last week in chapter 7, we took time to draw out spiritual parallels between this account of a worldwide judgment and the future coming judgment that accompanies Christ's return. So we looked at parallels like Christ in the form of the ark, or we looked at parallels in the way the family of Noah entered the ark through one door, which is Christ, and we looked at the way that door was closed by the hand of God, which is a way of reflecting our eternal security in Christ. So we We understood what happened, but we were also focused primarily on those parallels. As you may remember, I said that there was another side to chapter 7 that we still needed to study, and that was to break down the events, how it happened, how it transpired, and look at it more like the way we did creation versus evolution a few weeks back, in which we tried to understand as best we could the the literal, physical manifestations of, of the way God did it. So this is the week we need to take time to understand what God is doing, how he accomplishes it, and putting that all together, have a good mental picture of what it must have been like to have been there in that moment and what has now resulted from it so that we can leave this room with a clear understanding of what actually took place and I hope through that understanding a better opportunity to defend the truth of God's Word, especially in this particular situation, which is one of several that's often maligned 
by unbelievers as being impossible and myth and not literal. Well, hopefully I'll leave you better armed today to deal with this as literal truth. So let's go through what God brings us today in chapter 7. To do this properly, I'll back up just slightly in the text to chapter 7, verse 10. And then at one reading, I'm going to complete the chapter and then we'll look at it. Chapter 7, verse 10. It came about after the seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were opened. The rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife and three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind and all the cattle after their kind and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind and every bird after its kind, all sorts of birds. So they went into the ark to Noah by twos of all flesh in which was the breath of life. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him and the Lord closed it behind him. Then the flood came upon the earth for 40 days and the water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth and the ark floated on the surface of the water. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher and the mountains were covered. All the flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind. Of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky. And they were blotted out from the earth and only Noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark. The water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. We were going to examine these events as depicted here in this passage in four steps. First, let's examine the details of the text so that we can be sure we have a full understanding of what Scripture is describing here concerning the flood. And then, secondly, we're going to consult other Scripture to learn the source for all this water that God used in destroying the earth. And then third, we're going to look at the effects of all that water on the earth. And then finally, we're going to learn where all that water goes after the flood. So beginning in verse 11, we hear first that the flood began with the fountains of the deep bursting open and the floodgates of the sky being opened. The Hebrew words here for fountains and floodgates will give us a clearer picture of what's being described. For example, fountains here mean literally springs of water that emanate from the, from the ground. Things like we know today, hot springs, cold springs, that kind of thing. Floodgates is even more interesting because the word is arubah in Hebrew and it literally means chimney or a sluice from a mine. As they dig a mine, they, they get into areas where there's, the mine is underwater and they have to pump the water out and then it's set down a long shaft and that's a sluice in which water is channeled out. So what you need to imagine here from the Hebrew is an opening in the sky, in the clouds, through which water is literally pouring, like down a chimney. So water fills the world from two directions, up 
from springs down from the sky. And of the two, the scripture is more specific concerning the one that falls. The falling happens for 40 24-hour periods. And it falls across the entire globe for this 40-day period. There are no present-day meteorological conditions that could produce such an event. Today, when, when it rains, for example, rain clouds drop water that was previously collected through the water cycle of the earth from evaporation. So heat on the surface of some body of water, usually the oceans, provides uh, evaporation. That evaporation rises in the atmosphere, it condenses into clouds. Eventually those clouds move across land. As they hit land, they hit cooler air, they're, they're forced to uh, precipitate rainfalls, and that's the water cycle of the earth. But if the entire planet is simultaneously experiencing rainfall, that kind of an event, given what we see today, would come and go very quickly if it were even possible, because once the clouds had exhausted all their moisture, there's no water cycle in, at work to produce the evaporation. If the whole world is covered in rain, there's no evaporation taking place from any body of water. So there's no way for new water to be added to the atmosphere. So from our understanding of the way the atmosphere works today, there's no way this could happen today under present conditions. Therefore, in Noah's day, there must have been a source for the water, at least from the water above, which is different than anything we have today. It has to be a unique kind of source because the sources we have today in the atmosphere couldn't explain 40 continuous days of rain across the entire globe simultaneously. Next thing we observe, moving to verse 14, we hear that the animals God has delivered to Noah voluntarily enter the ark. They do so in pairs, of course, as we know. But notice, there's no indication that Noah led them in, chased them in, prodded them in, dragged them in, coaxed them in. Apparently there were no poodles involved in any of this. The text indicates only that they walked in on their own as God commanded at the appointed time. That makes a lot of sense when you think about it, because if we assumed anything else, for example, if we assumed God had demanded that Noah collect these animals and herd them in, I don't know that it's possible no matter how much time you give the man, much less being able to do it all in one day, because it says definitively they all entered on the same day. The only possible way something like this could happen is if the animals went in under their own volition, and that would be the case here. The God is commanding them, and they are responding as the creation does respond, to their creator. The other thing we observe here is that every animal we have today, every animal on the earth today, must trace its origins back to a pair that entered this ark. Because everything else dies, we are told definitively, by the water rising and covering the land. In fact, take note of how similar the language in verse 14 is to previous language you may remember from chapter 1 of Genesis. When God is relating how he created the world and how he created all the animals and then specifically the land animal, the birds, and then the land animals. The language between this verse and that earlier chapter is almost identical, which suggests that not only is God the creator of all animals, now he is working to preserve those he wishes to preserve. It's, it's putting the emphasis on God as the actor, as the one who has the authority and the control here. So every animal we have today must trace its origins back to this moment. But notice also the word kind being used very prominently in that verse. Every animal type after its own kind. 
And without belaboring something we've covered before, I'll simply remind you of what we've studied here, that this word kind is a special Hebrew word. It denotes an animal type that was designed or intended to diversify later as it separated itself from one another in the world. For example, one animal kind in this group may have been a canine of some kind. A canine animal, which was a kind, from which, over time, we saw many dog-like animals diversify from this original super kind. And based on this biblical truth, we can now understand that Noah's task was a little easier than we might have assumed, in that he was holding kinds of animals, not the full diversity of what we see today. And then after the flood, these kinds that left began to diversify And today now we see a broader representation for what has been preserved on the ark. The corollary is also true. We must also understand that there were animals left on the earth which perished in the flood. And therefore, the result of the flood would have been the burial of millions, if not hundreds of millions, of animals by mud, by sediment, all of it deposited by the floodwaters. And then thousands of years later, These skeletal remains were discovered by archaeologists and scientists who were digging in the ground. They observed all these skeletons deposited in layers piled up on top of one another, and they formed conclusions for what it meant. Those who were guided by God's word came to the conclusion that this is the evidence of a past flood. And others, of course, have come to different conclusions concerning evolution. But if you're willing and interested and take time, you can go somewhere in the world and see Noah's flood. This isn't a remote story that you could never hope to appreciate in a real tangible way. You can go and, in the right places, dig down deep enough and see Noah's flood. The literal remains of Noah's flood. Next, in verses 17 and 20, Moses describes the ark being lifted up by the water and floating on the water. He says the water kept rising, kept rising, it prevailed on the, on the earth until, you notice, the tops of mountains were covered. In fact, based on the cubit that he gives here, the cubit depth, the mountains were covered to a depth of 22 feet. Now, why is Moses giving us that detail? Who cares how deep the water was on top of the highest mountain? Just so long as they're covered, what's the difference? Well, it's actually relevant because based on the dimensions of the ark, this depth is enough to assure us that even if the ark settled into the water to half its height, it's still enough clearance at 22 feet that the boat would never run aground even on a mountaintop. So by the 22 feet measure, Moses is assuring us that the water was high enough that this boat would float no matter where it may have carried itself across the world. Everything was too deep to be rested on by the time the water stopped flowing. Later, we're going to discover that The mountains before the flood were actually much lower than the ones we see today. So we're not talking about Mount Everest here. We're talking about a much lower landscape at the time the flood began. But nonetheless, the mountains are covered. By the way, archaeologists today puzzle at something that they've noticed. They found that woolly mammoths, you know, the ones that we find preserved in ice, they are often found clustered together, huddling almost, on the tops of hills or mountains. And archaeologists have often wondered, why is it that we find woolly mammoths always on the tops of mountains? Well, the logical answer is they fled from the rising water, going to the highest point they could before it was 
too late and they perished together on the tops of these mountains. They had walked to the tops of these mountains. All the mud settled lower down. And so they were left to be frozen in water. Finally, God confirms here that the flood met its intended purpose. Moses relates here, every land animal, every person who remained on the earth perished. The only ones that survived are those who were in the flood. You notice even the birds, he emphasizes even the birds died. Sooner or later, a bird's got to land. And the length of this flood being 150 days before the water even started to recede was enough time to ensure that every creature died. Nothing could have lasted And even more than that, there was enough time for all the decomposition to begin, for the mud to bury everything properly. God has done a thorough job here, not only of dispatching life on earth, but also ensuring that when the flood is over and Noah's family emerges from the ark, they aren't confronted with a world filled with decomposing bodies, which would have been terrible, of course. Rather, they're confronted with a world that's like new again, at least in the sense that the surface of the earth has been remade again. Now, before we move to our second point, Let's take note of how the world looks here at this point. We're talking now about the apex of the flood, the point before the water starts to recede. What do we imagine in our mind's eye from the details we've been given? Well, it's not hard, right? It's all water. It's all water. If you viewed Earth from outer space at this moment, it's all blue. Unless you can make out the little brown speck. But otherwise, it's all blue. And remember how the book of Genesis began? The earth was consisting only of a formless deep, water. And then it says the Spirit of God floated over the surface of the deep. Now notice what we see in this moment if we compare this moment with that previous moment. Here now you see what seems to be God restarting creation, in a sense. He's not actually producing new material, obviously. But in the way the world appears, if if only for this moment, it's as if we've gone back in time to the start of creation. The world, again, is covered in water. The ark, which is a picture of Christ, as we know, is the only thing you can see floating on the surface of the water. At the beginning of creation, it was the Spirit of God. Now we see the Son of God in the form of the, the ark, pictured as Christ, floating on the surface of the deep. And that imagery is there to draw us to a point. This is a restart of the world made necessary by the sin of man. But we know from New Testament commentary, it's not the real restart. That awaits for the future judgment. This is an in-between moment, a precursor, but it gives us a good picture of what God is prepared to do to eliminate sin on the world. We've examined the text. We've taken an inventory of some of the detail and we've tried to understand it. Now let's take these next three questions each in turn, and try to understand better what's really happening from what other scriptures tell us concerning this event. For example, first, where did all this water come from? Let's first start by remembering that all the work of creation was completed on the sixth day. Hebrews gives us a concise testimony concerning this fact. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 3, the writer says, For we who have believed enter God's rest, just as he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works, God's works, were finished from the foundation of the world. And he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, God rested on the seventh day from all his works. The writer's point in those two verses is very simple. He's saying God has a stage or a period of rest in which he is now engaged in. 
And this is rest from the creative works that took place at the foundation of the world. All that was required to make all the physical elements of the universe took place in six days and then he was done. And he has never picked up that work again. So therefore, no new water was created for the flood. Whatever water was used in the day of the flood was water that was created back in the six days of creation. God's work with regard to creation ended on the seventh day. So we now have to find some way to account for all the water for the flood. The second thing we need to understand is the world has never experienced rain before this moment. So what we know today of the water cycle and the rain and everything I described a little while ago, that has not yet come upon the world. This moment is the first time rain has ever fallen on the world. So when I take those two facts and put them together, I'm forced to conclude that the source of water here must be something pre-established and unique, not like anything we have today, not dependent on the kinds of natural forces we see today, but something completely different. So now let's look to Scripture and see if we can find such a source. First, there is a clue in the creation story itself. Back in Genesis 1, I'll read verses 6 and 7 from that chapter concerning this day of the creation. The Lord said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. So clearly, as the world was being created, God placed water in some form above the expanse, which the expanse here refers to the air this atmospheric space around the earth. God has placed water below, which we know is the sea, and water above. Now, when I studied with you through chapter 1 the first time, I referred to this suspended water, the water that was above the expanse, as the water of our atmosphere, and that is true. But it's also clear here, based on what we've already said, that God has stored more water in this day, prior to Noah, than is stored there now. There must have been more water there in the beginning than there is now. And there's several ways we know that to be true. First, the atmosphere now is relatively dry compared to anything we could understand capable of producing 40 days of continuous rain around the world. Secondly, we know there's not been rain up till Noah's day, so the atmosphere had to be different if it didn't produce rain then, but it does now. There's obviously some change that's taken place to create that difference. There must have been a supernatural suspension of large quantities of liquid water or some form stored up for this very moment. And then once it was released, it's down and down for good. And then the atmosphere is forever different after that point. Now, Scripture seems to support this conclusion in several ways. For example, Psalms 148, 148 verses 4 and 5, the psalmist writes, Praise him, highest heavens, and the waters that are above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. Remember, when did all of creation take place? The first six days. So if the Lord commanded and they were created, that being the waters that are above the heavens, this is another reference to the fact that water was stored in the heavens above. Then Psalm 33 really gives this detail. Psalm 33, 6 
Listen, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap and he lays up the deeps in storehouses. You see the imagery there? It's consistent with chapter 1 of Genesis. Two sources of water, those who are in the sea, heaped up together, and those that are in storehouses. What an interesting term. Why does he refer to the other side, the the water that's above, why does he refer to it as a storehouse of water? Well, clearly that's a reference to the way that water was set aside and prepared for this future day in which, at God's command, it would fall, like through a chimney flooding the world. Peter gives us exactly that testimony out of his second letter. Listen to what Peter writes here, something I know you've heard before, but now listen to it with this thought in mind, with this context in mind, the storing up of water. Peter says in 2 Peter 3, verse 5, speaking about those who scoff at the prospect of a second coming or a judgment to come, he says, when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Peter says the world was created out of water. And then he adds something interesting in verse six. He's talking here about a judgment to come, the flood. He says, and by water, it was created out of water and by water. And then he goes on in verse six to say, and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed. It's that water that God used later for the time of the coming flood. So God knew that the flood would come. It was part of his plan. He made accommodation and plans for it by storing up the water in the heavens on the day of creation so that on an appointed moment it would fall and do its work. So to the question of what is the source of all this water that could flood the earth, it was a storehouse of water that God established at the creation and set aside for this moment so that it would fall when he was ready for it to fall. But now remember, we've already said there are two sources of water, haven't we? There's this one we've been focused on, but there's also the one that comes from the ground upward. In chapter 7, verse 11, the word there for opened, when he says he opened the fountains of the earth, it's bakha, B-A-Q-A in Hebrew. It literally means to cleave open. Not many people use cleavers anymore, I guess. Probably only a butcher or somebody who's serious about their meat. But... It's a large knife, square-shaped blade, very high blade so that it can go deep. Another way to think about cleaving is to think about how you cut wood with an axe. The whole point is to really split it more than it is to literally saw it open. So a piece of wood can be split with a hard strike from a deep wedge that forces them apart. That's the sense of this word in Hebrew. So the fountains were opened or cleaved or split The description suggests God tore the surface of the earth open to release these storehouses of water, the springs of water that he has under the earth. And if we look at the results of what the world appears like today compared to the way it was described in the creation, we can see the results of that cleaving, of that splitting. Because the original description of the earth as it was being formed is all the water in one place, which tells us definitively all the land was also in one place. One continent on a giant globe of water. That's how God created earth. Now, as he releases the waters, he cleaves, he cuts, 
He splits that one piece of land into multiple pieces. That's the effect of opening it up for the water to come out. And in doing so, it results in a violent movement of earth away from itself and ultimately the formation of continents. You know, even scientists, of course, recognize this, though they don't attribute it to the Bible story. They attribute it to natural forces, so to speak. But scientists say the same thing, that when you look at the continents and the way they're moving and the shape of them, it's clear that they all originated from a common location. They were all at once one piece of land. And now as they drift apart, we can see the remnants of what was there by looking at the shapes. And it's like a jigsaw puzzle. They would all fit right back together, more or less. This is how it happened. Now, imagine the destruction created by a sudden, violent movement of the continents away from each other like this. We've seen on TV just the kind of things a seven or eight at magnitude earthquake does in a small region. What if I took the entire continent of North America and shoved it hundreds of miles away from where it was previously attached to Europe or to uh, Africa? What, what kind of violent activity do you think would happen on the surface of the earth under those conditions? We can't even imagine it. It was utter destruction to the world. It would dwarf any earthquake we've ever seen. And you can also assume that it was accompanied by violent volcanic eruptions. Because as you tear the mantle of the earth apart, you're going to release that as well. So forget the biggest Hollywood blockbuster you've ever seen. They have nothing on this. This is something beyond anybody's imagination. And of course, the water only compounds it. By the way, since we're talking about the remaking of the earth's features, let's move to point three. What are the effects of the flood on the earth itself, on the surface of the world? We already noted the movement of the continents. We also mentioned the deposits of fossilized animals. That's another effect of the flood. Also, though, the movement of so much water across the surface of the earth, both during its arrival and later when it's receding off the earth, that's going to result in massive erosion, unlike anything we can see today. It's on a scale that we've never experienced since. Think about how water and earth work when water is moving. It cuts channels. It cuts canyons and it, it scars the earth and it pushes things off the earth. And it has a tremendous effect on the topography of the earth. There was a similar kind of large-scale erosion witnessed during the eruption of Mount St. Helens on a small scale compared to what we're talking about here, of course, but in a similar fashion. You know, Mount St. Helens was a tall mountain with lots of snow on it. The moment that volcano went off, it produced a lot of heat. Well, what does heat do to snow? It turns it into a river. A lot of snow suddenly became water, and it was all sitting on the top of a mountain. So what happens next? The fastest flash flood you've ever seen. And it cut huge canyons into the side of that mountain in just a matter of days and weeks, and it astounded archaeologists and, and geologists because they had never seen that kind of erosion so quickly. And their theories on erosion had always presumed that erosion took place over millions of years. The Grand Canyon, for example, is the product, in their mind, of millions of years of the Colorado River flowing through it. But canyons on a smaller scale were created in a matter of weeks coming off of Mount St. Helens. So they had to rethink some of those theories the Grand Canyon and many of the valleys and cliffs and rivers and river basins that we now see as part of our topography today were created in the days of the flood when these great channels of erosion were created as the water moved quickly off the surface of the earth. Next, we mentioned already how the atmosphere before the flood is different than the one we have today, all that water being stored there but not now. 
Well, once the water is gone from the atmosphere, the atmosphere is different. So the climate on the earth is going to be different. You're going to be a drier climate. You're going to have fewer clouds now, a different formation of clouds. And furthermore, now that the storehouses of water below the ground have been released, you no longer presumably have that mist that's described in chapter 2 watering the ground automatically. Remember, that's how the ground's been watered for all these centuries before the flood. The mist that rose up from the garden or that's described in the garden. Well, I probably have seen that change because I don't have all the storehouses with water anymore. I know that the rain cycle is going to be different. We're going to see rain now as a regular feature on the earth. All of these changes came about as a result of that God dropping all that water on the world. Now, here's something you may not have considered. As the continents drift to different places on the globe, they now experience very different weather than what they were experiencing when they were all in one place. If you happen to be living on the piece of land that broke off and became Antarctica, how much different was life on that piece of land following the flood than it was when it was part of one piece of land? Suddenly, it's really, really cold down here. In fact, in looking at the testimony of Scripture before this moment, it seems apparent that wherever these continents all were, it was more or less an idyllic setting. Because after all, Adam and woman could have lived there before sin without any clothes. Can't be very cold can't be very harsh. So whatever was the original location of land on the earth, it was an ideal climate, more or less. Now you have all types of climates. This explains why scientists today can find fossils of tropical plants in desert areas, or they can find fossils of fish on tops of mountains because the fish were deposited there during the flood, or why they find woolly mammoths flash frozen in ice. Because while they were standing on the top of that mountain where it previously was an idyllic place to live, when the waters started to recede, that piece of land had been shoved to the Arctic and now had been frozen before the water even had a chance to recede. Because God had changed the climate so radically by moving the continent so far. These are how things change so fast in the course of this flood. And then finally, let's answer the question of where did all this water go? At first glance, it's sort of a tough question if you haven't thought about it before because it almost seems like an impossible-to-solve riddle. Where does water go if the whole earth is covered in water? How do you eliminate all that water? How do you expose seven continents of land from underneath all that water and leave a third of the earth uncovered? In chapter 8, Moses is going to tell us that the water recedes over a period of months. So we know that it's going to take time. It doesn't just blink and it's gone. But that still begs the question, where is it going? Psalm 104 gives us the answer, a concise answer for where it goes. Psalm 104, verses 5 through 9. The psalmist writes, He established the earth upon its foundations so that it will not totter forever and ever. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place where you established for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass over so that they will not return to cover the earth. So breaking that down, verse 5, the psalmist just credits God with creating the earth. But then in verses 6 through 9, he moves from the creation to the flood story. He starts by saying God covered the earth with the deep. That's the word tehom again. In Hebrew, the word that means a deep abyss of water. 
So it's a reference to the flood. He covers the world with the flood. He even adds there in the next half of the verse that it covered the mountains, just like Genesis 7 tells us, like a garment, he says, covering the earth. But then, notice, he says, the waters fled the land, that is. They fled the land. At God's rebuke, they hurried away. That imagery in Hebrew communicates very clearly this image of water rushing, of receding, but at a fast, very violent rate, running off the earth, creating those canyons, creating those gullies, and so on. But then notice the next part. The mountains rose and the valleys sank. This happens as the water recedes. As the water is receding, mountains are rising, valleys are sinking. Now, what we're hearing described here is God taking parts of the land and making them taller and other parts of the earth's surface and making them lower. What happens to, let's say, a balloon? If I push in on one part of the balloon, what happens to the other part of the balloon? It expands out, right? What you're displacing has to go somewhere. And the earth is very much in that same situation now that God has formed it. Remember, he's not creating new land. He's only working with what he has. Just imagine God's hand grabbing a part of the earth that's currently under the water, reaching down into the water, grabbing it and pulling it out of the water, and it starts to rise up higher. Where's all that coming from? Somewhere else on the globe, an equal amount of displacement has to take place in the opposite direction. Some other part of the land that's underwater has to start getting deeper. The mountains of the earth now are much taller than they were in the time of Noah's flood. You have, for example, mountains like Mount Ararat or Mount Everest, which today are very, very tall mountains, but they've been made tall so that they would rise above the the water and along with it the surrounding plains and, and so on for the continents. By the way, islands are just tops of mountains that happen to protrude above the water. So he raised not only the continents, but all their smaller parts here and there to create island chains and smaller land masses that rise up above the water. Now, where are the valleys? Well, the valleys are in the ocean. In fact, the deepest valleys on earth are in the oceans. The Marianas Trench, for example, is the deepest known valley on the entire surface of the earth. It's seven miles down from the water to the bottom of that trench. If you took Mount Everest and set it down in the trench, the top of Mount Everest would still be a mile and a half underwater. That's how deep the Marianas Trench is, and that's just the deepest one, of course, but there are many, many valleys and trenches in the oceans. God has more than enough trenches and low points in the seas to accommodate or account for the land that was pressed up above the water. And what happens to the water? What does water do? Water always seeks its lowest point, right? That's a basic principle of, of water in the force of gravity. Any fluid seeks its lowest point. As soon as you do that, there's a mass runoff under violent conditions as that water starts to recede across all that land to get to the lowest point until the ocean levels are equalized. That's how God took care of all the water. And in the process, of course, created the topography that we now see across the world. Today's lesson here gives us a chance to focus on the how of God's work in the flood. And I didn't take time here to make application or ask questions of ourselves for how God wants us to use this knowledge and so on. I trust the Spirit will do that. But I do ask that you let this lesson draw your mind to the awesome power of God, to the wisdom of God, 
If God has the power to work these wonders on a worldwide scale and do it in such ease, just the word of his mouth makes these things happen. Is there anything he can't do in response to our needs or our situation or our worries or our concerns? Is anything that hard for him? And seeing his wisdom and how he put all this together, could we ever doubt that whatever we may face in our lives, whatever may happen to us, it must be according to some wise and masterful plan, even if we don't understand it in our day. Can't we trust that to be true? If he can work this kind of a plan out, is anything in our life really that challenging for him? Glory be to God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I praise you and I thank you for your wisdom and your power and for your willingness to display it in such awesome ways. And Father, because today we focused on a process of learning and exploring and we set aside for a time being, Father, any, any work to, to apply this in specific ways, to make challenges and exhortations, I ask, Father, that you would pick up where we left off and do that work because you do it so much better anyway. May the Spirit, Father, convict us each, encourage us all, show us, Father, how we may rely more fully on a hand that can do these things. And, Father, let it also be good and and useful to us as testimony, for we, we know that there are many people we encounter every day who would dismiss the story of the flood as mere myth. But we know, Father, when they do that, they miss the opportunity to encounter a holy and powerful and loving God. And they lose, Father, the, the blessing of relying on You. So we ask, Father, we might be able to put to work some of what we've learned in displaying the glory and the works of God and revealing it to someone new. Send us away from here, Father, encouraged and regenerated and spirit-led. And then bring us back here, Father, according to your will, for we have so much more to learn and so much more to offer. We pray these things in Jesus' name.